Hi guys, I would like to thank everyone who donates to the Patreon account. The donations keep the show going. My computer is ready to go kaput after eight years. So the Patreon fund will help me get another computer, and that will, in turn, enable me to churn out more episodes. There will be more giveaways in the future. And just a reminder, you don't have to give a lot. A dollar a month would do. Any amount would be appreciated. Once again, the Patreon account is located at www.patreon.com slash leader1. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N and L-E-A-D-E-R-O-N-E. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome to Human Monsters. This episode deals with three hate crimes. Hate crimes have been in the news a lot during the last couple of years. We explore three stories in depth. Part 1. Dylan Roof Personal Life Dylan Storm Roof was born on April 3, 1994 in Columbia, South Carolina. Violence was deeply rooted in Dylan's life starting with his childhood. His father physically abused his stepmother, as frequently witnessed by Dylan. They divorced in 2009. Paige Mann, his father's ex-wife, supported Dylan and his sister Amber in any way she could to pick up the slack from where their mother left off. She would drive Dylan and Amber to school and to their extracurricular activities. If the parental estrangement and domestic violence Dylan witnessed at home growing up had any kind of long-term effect on him, it was likely that his unresolved anger festered and turned rancid, congealing into hate. The hatred was misplaced and transferred to ethnic groups that Dylan considered to be oppressive and conspiratorial. As an adult, he had a roommate named Dalton Tyler. Dalton was not surprised by the plans Dylan carried out that led to his infamy. To quote Dalton, he was big into segregation and other stuff. He said he wanted to start a civil war. He said he was going to do something like that and then kill himself. Roof deleted social media accounts that included black people as friends. There were photographic indications of his agenda. In one photo, he is pictured with a burning American flag. In one image that was posted on Facebook, he is glaring at the camera with the apartheid flag of white-ruled Rhodesia, which was put out of use following the reclamation of that country by the indigenous peoples, who named the country Zimbabwe. In a beach photo, he is squatting, having etched the number 1488 in the sand. 1488 is a white supremacist code number. 
He drew other white supremacist symbols in the sand. There is a picture of him posing with black mannequins at a museum. They were dressed as slaves. John Mullins was a high school friend of Dylan's. In an interview with the Daily Beast, he described Roof as, quote, kind of wild, end quote. He noted that he was a heavy user of prescription drugs, saying, quote, he used drugs heavily, a lot. It was obviously harder than marijuana. He was like a pill popper, from what I understood, like Xanax and stuff like that. Joseph Meek Jr. was a friend who lost touch with Roof, but reconnected with him just a few weeks before the shooting. He said they never discussed race before they reconnected. With the second run of their friendship, he said Dylan would make remarks unprompted about the death of Trayvon Martin and the riots in Baltimore because of the death of Freddie Gray. To quote Meek, he said blacks were taking over the world. Someone needed to do something about it for the white race. He said he wanted segregation between whites and blacks. I said that's not the way it should be, but he kept talking about it. Court records have disclosed that Dylan Roof was charged with drug possession. The drugs were methamphetamine, cocaine, and LSD. Kristen Scriven was a neighbor friend of Roof's and African-American. One night when they got drunk together, Roof outlined a scheme to massacre students at the College of Charleston campus. Scriven said that Dylan intimated that he was deeply unhappy. He was shuttled back and forth between the homes of his divorced parents. Their acrimony was alive and well, with Dylan and Amber catching friendly fire on a regular basis. He said Dylan was depressed and felt emotionally neglected. He never got enough love and emotional support from his parents. When Roof was especially emotional, he would get in his car and blast a cassette of opera music. Scriven disclosed a clue to how Dylan's racist perspective may have evolved. I don't think his parents liked his decisions, the choices that he made to have black friends. Dylan bought a gun with money he received for his birthday. Scriven described another facet of Dylan's dysfunctional relationship with his mother. His mom had taken the gun from him, and somehow he went back and took it from her. That's when we saw the gun for the first time. 45 with a high-point laser beam. Aware as they were of Dylan's steadily burning inferno of rage, Scriven and Meek hid the gun from Dylan for fear that he would act on his ideation. They concealed it in an air conditioning vent, though they later give it back to him. When Kristen Scriven found out about the shooting, he said it hit him, quote, that he actually did all the stuff he said he was going to do, like he actually killed these people. Scriven and Roof's other friends never took Dylan's plan seriously. In the aftermath of the massacre, they experienced survivor's guilt from knowing that they might have been able to prevent the incident. To quote Kristen, I think everyone feels guilt. There are a lot of things that happen in life that we just don't understand and will never understand. And this situation is something that you're not going to find the answers to from ordinary people. 
The only person that can tell you is Dylan. An acquaintance of Ruth's named Caleb Brown said, If something in him turned, then it was recent. It wasn't his whole life. He wasn't sitting, bubbling with hatred towards black people. No, that just happened, and I don't know why. Brown also mentioned that he never saw signs of hatred in Dylan's family. Dylan Roof's arrest record didn't just disclose incidents of drug possession. On March 2, 2015, he was questioned about an incident that occurred on February 28th at the Columbiana Center, a shopping mall. He was dressed entirely in black and asked employees questions they found discomforting. While he was questioned, he was searched. Police found a bottle of Suboxone, which is a narcotic used to treat opioid addiction. He was arrested once again for drug possession. He was banned from the Columbiana Center for a year. He was arrested when he trespassed on the mall grounds on April 26th. The ban was extended for three additional years. Politics. According to his roommate's description, Dylan Roof was an enthusiastic supporter of reinstating racial segregation. He intended to trigger a race war. Manifesto Dylan Roof created a website, since deactivated, called The Last Rhodesian. It was registered through privacy protection, which conceals the identity of the site's creator. The website featured a link to the manifesto Roof wrote, which called for a new American Civil War. One section was entitled, Patriotism. He wrote, I hate the sight of the American flag. Modern American patriotism is an absolute joke. People pretending like they have something to be proud of, while white people are being murdered daily in the streets. This white superiority complex that comes from learning of how we dominated other peoples is also part of the problem I have just mentioned. But of course, I don't deny that we are, in fact, superior. This is quoted verbatim from the full text of Dylan Roof's manifesto. I was not raised in a racist home or environment. Living in the South, Almost every white person has a small amount of racial awareness, simply because of the numbers of Negroes in this part of the country. But it is a superficial awareness. Growing up, in school, the white and black kids would make racial jokes toward each other, but all they were jokes. Me and white friends would sometimes would watch things that would make us think that blacks were the real racists, and other elementary thoughts like this but there was no real understanding behind it. The event that truly awakened me was the Trayvon Martin case. I kept hearing and seeing his name, and eventually I decided to look him up. I read the Wikipedia article, and right away I was unable to understand what the big deal was. It was obvious that Zimmerman was in the right. But more importantly, this prompted me to type in the words black-on-white crime into Google and I have never been the same since that day. The first website I came to was the Council of Conservative Citizens. There were pages upon pages of these brutal black-on-white murders. I was in disbelief. At this moment, 
I realized that something was very wrong. How could the news be blowing up the Trayvon Martin case while hundreds of these black-on-white murders got ignored? From this point, I researched deeper and found out what was happening in Europe. I saw that the same things were happening in England and France and in all the other Western European countries. Again, I found myself in disbelief. As an American, we are taught to accept living in the melting pot, and black and other minorities have just as much right to be here as we do, since we are all immigrants. But Europe is the homeland of white people, and in many ways the situation is even worse there. From here, I found out about the Jewish problem and other issues facing our race, and I can say today that I am completely racially aware. Blacks. I think it is fitting to start off with the group I have the most real-life experience with and the group that is the biggest problem for Americans. Niggers are stupid and violent. At the same time, they have the capacity to be very slick. Black people view everything through a racial lens. That's what racial awareness is. It's viewing everything that happens through a racial lens. They are always thinking about the fact that they are black. This is part of the reason they get offended so easily and think that some things are intended to be racist towards them, even when a white person wouldn't be thinking about race. The other reason is the Jewish agitation of the black race. Black people are racially aware almost from birth, but white people on average don't think about race in their daily lives. And this is our problem. We need to and have to. Say you were to witness a dog being beaten by a man. You were almost surely going to feel very sorry for that dog. But then say you were to witness a dog biting a man. You will most likely not feel the same pity you felt for the dog for the man. Why? Because dogs are lower than men. This same analogy applies to black and white relations. Even today, blacks are subconsciously viewed by white people as lower beings. They are held to a lower standard in general. This is why they are able to get away with things like obnoxious behavior in public, because it is expected of them. Modern history classes instill a subconscious white superiority complex in whites and an inferiority complex in blacks. This white superiority complex that comes from learning of how we dominated other peoples is also part of the problem I have just mentioned. But of course, I don't deny that we are in fact superior. I wish with a passion that niggers were treated terribly throughout history by whites, that every white person had an ancestor who owned slaves, that segregation was an evil and oppressive institution, and so on. Because if it was all true, it would make it so much easier for me to accept our current situation. But it isn't true. None of it is. We are told to accept what is happening to us because of ancestors' wrongdoing. But it is all based on historical lies, exaggerations, and myths. I have tried endlessly to think of reasons we deserve this, and I have only come back more irritated because there are no reasons. Only a fourth to a third of people in the South owned even one slave. Yet every white person is treated as if they had a slave-owning ancestor. This applies to in the states where slavery never existed. 
as well as people whose families immigrated after slavery was abolished. I have read hundreds of slaves' narratives from my state, and almost all of them were positive. One sticks out in my mind where an old ex-slave recounted how the day his mistress died was one of the saddest days of his life. And in many of these narratives, the slaves told of how their masters didn't even allow whipping on his plantation. Segregation was not a bad thing. It was a defensive measure. Segregation did not exist to hold back Negroes. It existed to protect us from them. And I mean that in multiple ways. Not only did it protect us from having to interact with them and from being physically harmed by them, but it protected us from being brought down to their level. Integration has done nothing but bring whites down to level of brute animals. The best example of this is obviously our school system. Now white parents are forced to move to the suburbs to send their children to, quote, good schools, end quote. But what constitutes a good school? The fact is that how good a school is considered directly corresponds to how white it is. I hate with a passion the whole idea of the suburbs. To me, it represents nothing but scared white people running. Running because they are too weak, scared, and brainwashed to fight. Why should we have to flee the cities we created for the security of the suburbs? Why are the suburbs secure in the first place? Because they are white. The pathetic part is that these white people don't even admit to themselves why they are moving. They tell themselves it is for better schools or simply to live in a nicer neighborhood. But it is honestly just a way to escape niggers and other minorities. But what about the white people that are left behind? What about the white children who, because of school zoning laws, are forced to go to a school that is 90% black. Do we really think that the, that white kid will be able to go one day without being picked on for being white or called a white boy? And who is fighting for him? Who is fighting for these white people forced by economic circumstances to live among Negroes? No one, but someone has to. Here I would like to touch on the idea of a Northwest Front. I think this idea is beyond stupid. Why should I, for example, give up the beauty and history of my state to go to the Northwest? To me, the whole idea just parallels the concept of white people running to the suburbs. The whole idea is pathetic and just another way to run from the problem without facing it. Some people feel as though the South is beyond saving, that we have too many blacks here. To this I say, look at history. The South had a higher ratio of blacks when we were holding them as slaves. Look at South Africa, and how such a small minority held the black in apartheid for years and years. Speaking of South Africa, if anyone thinks that will eventually just change for the better, consider how in South Africa they have affirmative action for the black population that makes up for 80% of the population. It is far from being too late for America or Europe. I believe that even if we made up only 30% of the population, we could take it back completely. But by no means should we wait any longer to take drastic action. Anyone who thinks that white and black people look as different as we do on the outside, but are somehow magically the same on the inside, is delusional. If a scientist publishes a paper on the differences between the races in Western Europe or Americans, 
he can expect to lose his job. There are personality traits within human families and within different breeds of cats or dogs, so why not within the races? A horse and a donkey can breed and make a mule, but they are still two completely different animals. Just because we can breed with the other races doesn't make us the same. In a modern history class, it is always emphasized that, when talking about quote-unquote bad things whites have done in history, they were white. But when we learn about the numerous, almost countless, wonderful things whites have done, it is never pointed out that these people were white. Yet when we learn about anything important done by a black person in history, it is always pointed out repeatedly that they were black. For example, when we learn about how George Washington Carver was the first nigger smart enough to open a peanut. On another subject, I want to say this. Many white people feel as though they don't have a unique culture. The reason for this is that white culture is world culture. I don't mean that our culture is made up of other cultures. I mean that our culture has been adopted by everyone in the world. This makes us feel as though our culture isn't special or unique. Say, for example, that every businessman in the world wore a kimono, that every skyscraper was in the shape of a pagoda, that every door was a sliding one, and that everyone ate every meal with chopsticks. This would probably make a Japanese man feel as though he had no unique traditional culture. I have noticed a great disdain for race-mixing white women within the white nationalist community, bordering on insanity. These women are victims, and they can be saved. Stop. Jews. Unlike many white nationalists, I am of the opinion that the majority of American and European Jews are white. In my opinion, the issues with Jews is not their blood, but their identity. I think that if we could somehow destroy the Jewish identity, then they wouldn't cause much of a problem. The problem is that Jews look white, and in many cases are white, yet they see themselves as minorities. Just like niggers, most Jews are always thinking about the fact that they are Jewish. The other issue is that they network. If we could somehow turn every Jew blue for 24 hours, I think there would be a mass awakening, because people would be able to see plainly what is going on. I don't pretend to understand why Jews do what they do. They are an enigma. Hispanics. Hispanics are obviously a huge problem for Americans, but there are good Hispanics and bad Hispanics. I remember while watching Hispanic television stations, the shows and even the commercials were more white than our own. They have respect for white beauty, and a good portion of Hispanics are white. It is a well-known fact that white Hispanics make up the elite of most Hispanic countries. There is good white blood worth saving in Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, and even Brazil. But they are still our enemies. East Asians I have great respect for the East Asian races. Even if we were to go extinct, they could carry something on. They are by nature very racist and could be great allies of the white race. I am not opposed at all to allies with the Northeast Asian races. Patriotism. I hate the sight of the American flag. Modern American patriotism is an absolute joke. People pretending like they have something to be proud of while white people are being murdered daily in the streets. 
Many veterans believe we owe them something for, quote, protecting our way of life, end quote, or, quote, protecting our freedom, end quote. But I'm not sure what way of life they are talking about. How about we protect the white race and stop fighting for the Jews? I will say this, though. I myself would have rather lived in the 1940s America than Nazi Germany. And no, this is not ignorant speaking. It is just my opinion. So I don't blame the veterans of any wars up until after Vietnam, because at least they had an American to be proud of and fight for. An explanation. To take a saying from a film, I see all this stuff going on, and I don't see anyone doing anything about it. And it pisses me off. To take a saying from my favorite film, even if my life is worth less than a speck of dirt, I want to use it for the good of society. I have no choice. I am not in the position to, alone, go into the ghetto and fight. I chose Charleston because it is the most historic city in my state, and at one time had the highest ratio of blacks to whites in the country. We have no skinheads, no real KKK, no one doing anything but talking on the internet. Well, someone has to take the bravery to take it to the real world, and I guess that has to be me. Unfortunately, at the time of this writing, I am in a great hurry and some of my best thoughts, actually many of them have been left out and lost forever, but I believe enough great white minds are out there already. Please forgive my typos. I didn't have time to check it. June 17th, 2015, 8.06 p.m. Dylan Roof pulled up at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The congregation of this church is African American. Roof entered the church through the side door. Church members were engaged in Bible study. Roof loitered in the room for roughly an hour. He met with some of the attendees and was welcomed. They assumed he wished to join them in Bible study. Little did they know that his heart was frozen to the touch, melted only by the heat of his volcanic anger and seething hatred. Dylan Roof went into massacre mode. He drew a handgun from his fanny pack. Taiwanza Sanders, son of survivor Felicia Sanders, attempted to dissuade Roof from carrying out the massacre. He obstructed Roof's access to 87-year-old Susie Jackson. She was Taiwanza's aunt. She was the first to be shot. Felicia Sanders laid down on top of her granddaughter to protect her from getting shot. Taiwanza Sanders was shot and killed. Felicia watched her son die. Felicia's next move was to play dead among the other bodies on the floor. The third survivor was spared by Roof. He said to her, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to spare you, so you can tell them what happened. One survivor pleaded with him to stop. His response, I have to do it. 
you rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. The other two survivors were Camille Terry and an unnamed woman. One survivor recalled that Roof reloaded his gun five times as he selected his victims. According to one witness, he made racist remarks before leaving. Six women and three men were killed. The complete list of names. Pastor Clementa Pinckney, 41. Clementa was the pastor of Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. It is one of America's oldest black churches. Clementa was a state legislator for 19 years, the youngest African American at the age of 23 to be elected to the South Carolina legislature. He was elected to the state senate in 2000. He had a master's degree in public administration from the University of Southern California. He also studied at the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary. He was remembered as a giant and legend by all who knew him. He was born in the town of Beaufort. He began preaching at the age of 13. He was appointed pastor at 18. He was named pastor of Mother Emanuel Amy Church in 2010. Senator Vincent Sheehan, who sat beside Clementa in the Senate chambers, said of him, I think of the irony that the most gentle of the 46 of us, the best of the 46 of us in this chamber, is the one who lost his life. He is survived by his wife and two children. Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, 45. Sharonda was a part-time minister at the Emanuel AME Church. She worked as a speech pathologist at Goose Creek High School, where she also coached the girls' track team. The school's principal, Jimmy Husky, said she was so dedicated she reported to work at 8 a.m. and usually didn't leave until 8 p.m. To quote Husky, she had a big smile. Her number one concern was always the students. She made a difference in the lives of children. She cannot be replaced here at this school. She was considered by many to be an excellent role model. In tribute to Sharonda, the track team made this statement on their Facebook page. We love you, Coach Singleton. Gator Nation is where it is today because of your leadership. You have our thoughts and prayers. Her son, Chris Singleton, wrote on Twitter, Something extremely terrible has happened to my mom tonight. Please pray for her and my family. Pray ASAP. On Instagram, he posted an image of his mother beside Reverend Pinckney. Chris wrote, In this picture are two new angels in the sky. One of them happens to be my mommy. Ethel Lance, 70. Ethel was a member of the church for most of her life. She worked for 30 years as a housekeeper at the Gallard Auditorium. She worked as a sexton at the church for the last five years of her life. She loved gospel music. Her granddaughter, Nahi Washington, said of Ethel, She was a God-fearing woman. She was the heart of the family, and she still is. She is a very caring, giving, and loving woman. She was beautiful inside and out. Her grandson, John Quill Lance, said, Granny was the heart of the family. She's a Christian, hardworking. 
I could call my granny for anything. I don't have anyone else like that. Ethel had five children, seven grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. Susie Jackson, 87. Susie was a member of the church for many years. She sang in the choir. Ethel Lance was her cousin. Her son, Tim Jackson, described her as a loving and giving woman with a great smile. To quote Tim, It's just hard to process that my grandmother had to leave Earth this way. It's real, real hard. It's challenging because I don't believe she deserved to go this way. Taiwanza Sanders, 26. Taiwanza was the youngest victim. He graduated from Allen University the previous year, majoring in business. Allen University issued a statement after hearing of the massacre. He was a quiet, well-known student who was committed to his education. He presented a warm and helpful spirit as he interacted with his colleagues. This quote was featured as a caption on an image of baseball player Jackie Robinson and was posted by Taiwanza on Instagram the night before his death. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. DePayne Middleton Doctor, 49. DePayne was committed to helping other people. When she wasn't helping college students, she came to the aid of Charleston's indigent population. Her religious faith ran deep. She had four daughters. Following her death, her sister wrote the following poem in tribute to DePayne, who she referred to as her beautiful songbird. I truly miss you, my love, your beautiful personality, your laughter, your smile, and your love for everyone. Cynthia Hurd, 54. Her brother drew comfort from knowing that Cynthia died in the church she attended all her life and loved dearly. She was a manager of a branch of the Charleston County Library System. To honor Cynthia, the system closed all 16 of its branches the day that followed her death. Her husband was a merchant sailor at sea near Saudi Arabia. Cynthia was looking forward to her retirement and her 55th birthday. A statement issued by the library system went as follows. Cynthia was a tireless servant of the community who spent her life helping residents, making sure they had every opportunity for an education and personal growth. Her loss is incomprehensible, and we ask for prayers for her family, her co-workers, her church, and this entire community as we come together to face this tragic loss. Myra Thompson, 59. Myra was married to Reverend Anthony Thompson, vicar of the Holy Trinity REC Church in Charleston. Archbishop Foley Beach wrote this statement on Facebook. Please join me in praying for the Reverend Anthony Thompson, vicar of Holy Trinity REC Church in Charleston, his family and their congregation with the killing of his wife Myra in the Charleston shootings last night. Daniel Simmons, Sr., 74. Daniel was a retired pastor from another church in Charleston. He attended the Emmanuel Church every Sunday for services and on Wednesday for Bible study. He survived the incident long enough to make it to hospital, but he died shortly thereafter on the operating table. 
Surveillance photos and video captured clear images of Dylan Roof and his car. Due to his criminal past, local police were able to identify him. After issuing a press release alerting the community to his culpability, they were notified that he was a, quote, very dangerous individual. Debbie Dills was on her way to work the day after the shooting. She saw a black Hyundai next to her at a stoplight that looked very familiar. It had a South Carolina tag. The driver was a white male with a bowl cut and identical to the suspect she saw on the news. She pulled over and notified her boss, Todd Frady. He called a friend who worked for the Kings Mountain Police Department. Dills caught up with Roof and took down his license plate number. She followed him for two more miles. Dills and Frady were commended for this action. After an hours-long manhunt, police apprehended Dylan Roof. He was arrested in his car, which was parked when it was found. The police were assisted by Dylan Roof's father and daughter, who called a hotline to turn Dylan in. His father was accused by Dylan's uncle, Carson Coles, of purchasing a handgun for Dylan. His father was adamant that this did not happen. At the time of his arrest, Dylan was wearing a bullet-resistant vest. Dylan confessed to the crimes, stating that it was his intention to start a race war. He was unrepentant, and it was his wish that the incident become known to every American. He reported that he nearly reneged on his plan when the parishioners at the church were so friendly and welcoming to him. June 19, 2015 Dylan Storm Roof appeared in court for a bond hearing. He was charged with nine counts of murder and firearms-related charges. He was plain-spoken and unemotional. He only spoke briefly when prompted to do so by the judge. Representatives of the families affected were present. Chief Magistrate James Gosnell made this statement. Charleston is a very strong community. We have big hearts. We're a very loving community. We're going to reach out to everyone, all victims, and we will touch them. We have victims, nine of them, but we also have victims on the other side. There are victims on this young man's side of the family. Nobody would have ever thrown them into the whirlwind of events that they have been thrown into. We must find it in our heart at some point in time, not only to help those that are victims, but to also help his family as well. Victim Impact Statements Bethane Middleton-Brown, representing the family of Reverend DePayne Middleton. DePayne Doctor was my sister, and I just thank you on behalf of my family for not allowing hate to win. For me, I'm a work in progress, and I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing DePayne always joined in my family with is that she taught me we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate. We have to forgive. I pray God on your soul, and I also thank God I won't be around when your judgment day comes with him. Felicia Sanders, mother of Taiwanza Sanders. We welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. Taiwanza Sanders was my son, but Taiwanza was my hero. Taiwanza was my hero. 
But as we said in Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. Anthony Thompson, representing the family of Myra Thompson. I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so he can change your ways no matter what happens to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than you are right now. Alana Simmons, granddaughter of Daniel Simmons. Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof they lived in love, and their legacies will live in love. So hate won't win. And I just wanted to thank the court for making sure that hate doesn't win. Ethel Lace's daughter. I forgive you. You took something really precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. It hurts me. It hurts a lot of people. But God forgive you. And I forgive you. The Roof family issued a statement through Dylan's public defender, saying that they extended their deepest sympathy and condolences to the families of the victims. Words cannot express our shock, grief, and disbelief as to what happened last night. Our thoughts and prayers are with the families and friends of those killed this week. His uncle was asked by ABC News how he would feel about Dylan receiving the death penalty. He said, I'll be the one to push the button. If he's found guilty, I'll be the one to push the button myself. If what I'm hearing is true, he needs to pay for it. April 10th, 2017. Dylan Roof pleaded guilty to nine state counts of murder. He was sentenced to nine consecutive sentences of life without parole. He was also sentenced to death. In a letter to the victim's families, District Attorney Scarlett Wilson characterized the plea deal as, quote, an insurance policy to ensure that Roof would die in prison should his death sentence be overturned. Part 2. The Rape of Conchita Marquez Please note that Conchita Marquez is a pseudonym. The real name of the minor victim in this story has remained undisclosed to protect her from public scrutiny. November 28, 2010, Cleveland, Texas. An 11-year-old Latina accepted an offer from a 19-year-old African-American male. He promised to take her, quote, riding around, end quote, with two other males of comparable age. Conchita accepted, and she was taken to one of the men's houses. She was ordered to remove all her clothes and perform sexual acts on the men. She was informed that if she did not comply, they would beat her savagely. Fearing for her safety, she was passed around. Shuffled from the bedroom to the bathroom. Four other males were contacted via cell phone and invited to participate. They arrived in short order. The man who was hosting the rape had to put a cap on the festivities. His aunt was returning home. The men escaped through a back window with Conchita in tow. 
They reconvened the brutal sexual assault of 11-year-old Conchita at an abandoned, derelict trailer home. It was blanketed in garbage and broken glass, filthy and uninhabitable, even for a visit. Phone calls and text messages were disseminated throughout a black neighborhood known as the Quarters. The new recruits brought the number of perpetrators to 28. They decided it would be a swell idea to capture the assault with still and video images with their cell phones. From a legal standpoint, they were making child pornography. The images of the torture, humiliation, and degradation of Conchita were shared to several high school students. One student was not nearly as amused as the others, and they told a teacher at the school, who, in turn, notified the police. An investigation was launched. Since many of the figures in the images did not take precautions to hide their faces, arrests were made. Cedric DeRay Scott, Kelvin Rashad King, Jamarcus Norris Knapper, and Devo Sean Green were taken into custody. All the perpetrators were black. One of them was on bond for shooting death in 2008. Another was up for firearm and robbery-related charges. Another served a month in jail for assaulting a relative. Representatives of the local black community supported the perpetrators and blamed Conchita Marquez for what happened to her. Conchita, raped by 28 men with barbarity, was not spared any mercy during the act and received no empathy from black leaders after the fact. They called her a snitch and a willing participant. They alleged that she dressed older than her age, wearing makeup. Female reps said she lied about her age. Them boys didn't rape her. She wanted this to happen. They went on to say, where were the parents when this girl was seen wandering at all hours, with no supervision and pretending to be much older? James D. Evans III, a black defense attorney who represented several of the child rapists, said, The victim was seeking attention, and she wants to be a porn star. You heard that correctly. He accused an 11-year-old girl of being an aspiring pornographer. One of the mothers of the malefactors accused Conchita's parents of being at fault for supervising the girl so insufficiently that she was viciously gang-raped by 28 ruthless perverts. Adding trauma to trauma, Child Protective Services removed Conchita from her family home and assumed responsibility for her welfare. Piling on insults to injury, rumors were spread about Conchita. People said she had a Facebook page where she, quote, made flamboyant statements about drinking, smoking, and sex. She was also alleged to have disclosed that she, quote, was hurt many times, end quote, and, quote, let people take advantage of, end quote, her. Conchita's mother, who was identified by the possible pseudonym of Maria, 
insisted that the rapists knew their victim was only 11 years old, one who, quote, still loves stuffed bears, end quote. Maria received innumerable threatening phone calls from local blacks. The threats were so hateful and vicious, the family was urged by police to relocate. The people who were so quick to condemn this 11-year-old rape victim were more outraged that the crime was reported to police than they were by the crime itself. These vents had a ripple effect throughout the ethnic populations of this community, leading to racial tensions between blacks and Latinos. Some Hispanics made threats to members of a black church because he was hosting a talk by Quanell X, a former crack dealer and current Black Panther. He vowed to visit the town exclusively for the purpose of defending the accused. Police urged him to cancel the event to avoid exacerbating, quote, racial unrest between black and Hispanic groups, end quote. Instead of canceling, the meeting was relocated to another venue. When X gave his speech, he said local Latinos, quote, had a right to be angry with black men who ravaged a young girl. But the first house you need to stop at is her mama and daddy's house. The entirely black audience shouted, clapped, cheered, and threw in several amens. Conchita Marquez went from an obscure prepubescent girl living her life to being a victim of gang rape and then public enemy number one. Figuratively speaking, she was still being gang raped, only now the participants numbered in the hundreds. Dousing the wound with muriatic acid, Quanell X said he, quote, did not come here this evening to jump on an 11-year-old girl, end quote. He did question why she, quote, didn't report the attack to the authorities herself. The victim was on trial in the kangaroo court of Cleveland's black community, and she was pronounced guilty with nobody to defend her. Quanell X was curious to know why, quote, only young black men had been arrested, end quote, for the crime. He must not have gotten the memo about the photographic evidence. Quanell X has a history of dispensing bad advice to the black community. He has urged black people to mug you some good white folks, end quote, and to, quote, give these white folks hell from the womb to the tomb, end quote. He accused legal officials in the city of Cleveland of practicing what he has labeled selective prosecution. He was half right. They only prosecuted the individual seen clearly and unmistakably in the photographic evidence. Selecting anybody unseen in the videos and stills would have been a miscarriage of justice. Naturally, X accused the police of being racist and compared them to the Ku Klux Klan. Guanel X's self-righteous bullshit aside, the person who was most affronted in this situation was little 11-year-old Conchita Marquez. She was a victim of not just gang rape, but the condemnation of half her community, who blamed and shamed her based on ignorance and misinformation. 
Conchita may never recover from the trauma. The prognosis of mental health outcomes that arise out of these incidents is seldom optimistic. One rape is damaging enough for a lifetime. Conchita was passed around like a fallen animal and torn apart by antisocial perverts with no sense of remorse or humanity. If suicide or substance abuse does not divert her to an early grave, a lifetime of post-traumatic stress disorder and its myriad complications is sure to plague her in the years to come. It is my hope that she has been shown kindness, so that she will be reminded that evil is not the only warring faction on the earth and battleground as good competes against evil to win the spirits of mankind. Part 3 the attack on Austin Hillborn. This quote has been attributed to Morgan Freeman. Attacking people with disabilities is the lowest display of power I can think of. December 31st, 2016. 18-year-old Austin Hillborn was dropped off at a McDonald's by relatives in suburban Chicago. Austin is Caucasian. He was also diagnosed with schizophrenia and attention deficit disorder. In other words, so-called invisible disabilities. That night, Jordan Hill, an 18-year-old African-American teen, approached Austin. He took him for a ride in a stolen van. Austin was said to have idolized Jordan and was keen to take him up on his offer. The two attended the same high school. For the next 48 hours, Hill forced Hillborn to sleep in the van in freezing temperatures while Jordan visited friends. Tuesday, Jordan and Austin met up with Tess Faye Cooper, also black, in his apartment. Other attendees of this gathering were the Covington sisters, both black, Brittany, 18, and Tanisha, 24. For an estimated five to six hours, Jordan and his friends forced Austin to drink from the toilet. They bound and gagged him. They punched and kicked him innumerable times. Those tortures were not adequate for his tormentors. They sliced off part of his scalp. When this occurred, one of them joked about it, saying, He leakin'. They burned his head with lit cigarettes. All the while, they repeatedly threatened him with death. Torturing Austin was endlessly entertaining to those pieces of shit. They laughed hysterically the entire time. Austin's assailants made a critical error. They live-streamed the torture of Austin Hillborn on Facebook. As if the humiliation hadn't been bad enough in the apartment, now Jordan Hill and his other friends would watch and revel in the abuse. They stated a motive on the video, essentially saying that Austin Hillborn was paying the price for America's racial inequities. The following statements could be heard clearly by the perpetrators. Fuck Donald Trump, nigga. Funk white people, boy. Fuck white people, boy. This nigga right here, he represents Trump. His ass deserves it. His ass from Europe. 400 years done stopped two years ago. If he sit in the sun all day, he will perish. 
If he sit in the sun all day, he gon' die. His ass a parasite. He a bug. Literally. He don't belong on this earth. Goof-ass white man. Chicago Police Department Commander Kevin Duffin's statement on the incident couldn't have possibly been more tone-deaf. Although they're young adults, they're 18. Kids make stupid decisions. I shouldn't call them kids. They're legally adults, but they're young adults, and they make stupid decisions. No condolences to the Hillborn family can be discerned in that statement. I don't know about you, but most of my stupid decisions as a young adult involved excessive drinking and an aesthetically bankrupt wardrobe. I never tied a disabled man to a chair and tortured him for hours. Considering how the crime was planned and facilitated, there were no elements that can be chalked up to impulsivity or the cognitive distortions of alcohol and drug intoxication, which can definitely lead to poor judgment. This was a premeditated crime, and the laughter heard on the video was a clear indicator of a complete lack of empathy and remorse on the part of the offenders. As the dust settled, a young man with severe mental health challenges now has to grapple with the effects of trauma as an exacerbating factor atop of everything else he struggles with. Hopefully he won't hear the voices of his attackers for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, that is a real possibility, considering his diagnosis of schizophrenia, a disorder that induces hallucinations, including disembodied voices. It will be further impacted by a distortion of Austin's perception of reality. My decision to include these three stories of hate crimes is to shed light on the fact that not only is there no excuse for committing these crimes, but the perpetrators do not deserve apologists, especially when there is photographic evidence of their culpability. Racism and prejudice exist in every race. Regardless of your skin color, if you commit an offense like the aforementioned, you have a black heart. There is nothing righteous or justifiable about these crimes. It's bullying. It's cruelty. And for the victims, it was entirely undeserved. Hate crime offenders are human monsters, plain and simple. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.